Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. You, whoever has this in their ears, are listening to Wire Dads. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, thank you. Out of all the podcasts in the entire world, you chose this one. (laughs) Yeah, what are some other options, do we think? Like, what else could someone be listening to? You could, I mean, I just feel like if I named anything, there's a podcast about it, right? Like, municipal water use in (laughs) Kansas City. I bet you could be listening to that. The Kansas City Water Bureau pod. Totally. I bet there's someone who just records like scanners, like police scanners, and that's a podcast. I certainly hope so. And you could be listening to that right now. And maybe I just lost you. (laughs) (laughs) What did you say the other day on Twitter about chemistry and podcasts? To me, podcasts are a difficult medium because you can start listening to something and you can be super interested in the subject matter. And yet, if you're me, you can be like these people are pretending to have chemistry, and they don't, and it is very distracting, and now I can't focus on snow tires or whatever this thing is about. (laughs) Sarah, what are we talking about in today's Wired Ads? We are talking about Stephen King's The Shining and Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, two great tastes that perhaps can taste great together. You'll find out by the end of this episode what we think. Either it will or it won't, yeah. You have some warmth for The Shining. You know, okay, so I went on a whole journey when we did this episode because I was like, I'm going to reread the book and I'm going to watch the movie and I'm just going to like try and come to both of them as fresh as possible. Um, And I knew that I loved Stephen King's The Shining and that I had less than fond feelings for the movie. And... When I re-encountered both of them for this, I, like, first was like, yeah, I don't like this movie because, specifically because it took a book that, to me, is such an incredibly rich exploration of, like, how do you become abusive? Like, how does someone who doesn't want to be abusive be that anyway? Mm. And I just feel like that's so rare as a subject matter or like a headspace that anyone really tries to be inside of. And I think that it's just such an extraordinary work. And I feel as if that really has been obfuscated by the fact that the movie kind of came in and didn't use a lot of that material and kind of made it a story about creepy twins. And I do like the movie now. Like I really came around on the movie, but I had to first like sit with my deep grievances to get there. We should say, by the way, that, um, this is probably a trigger, the trigger warniest episode that we've had so far because we talk a lot about a physically abusive person. Yeah, and we read a passage from Stephen King's novel where he breaks his son's arm. Your criticism of where the adaptation goes wrong, I would say in some ways, is the most on the nose And somehow one that I haven't heard a lot of. Usually the criticism is about the tone of the movie or the approach or how divergent it is, but it's not that. The fucking Mm -hmm. scariest thing about the book is it's about a normal man and his abuse and then being trapped in that relationship and being trapped with that person. Somehow... (laughs) It was very, very rich for scary stuff, but that was not what was tapped into for the movie. Right. It's a weird criticism because it's not about something the movie did, really. It's about what it didn't do. And I would feel similarly if Rosemary's Baby was adapted this unfaithfully, because that's a book that, like, again, like, is a man 
in mid-century America being like, yeah, men are awful. Husbands are terrible. Don't trust them. Like the real villain of Rosemary's Baby is Guy Woodhouse, who has to be talked to two times before he agrees to let the neighbors have Satan impregnate his wife via drugging and rape. And like, if that had been lost from the adaptation, I would be similarly upset. Yeah, but you did, but you ended up liking the movie more than you expected to. I did as well. Why do you think that was for you? Um, I I love a lot about the movie, and this movie has existed as we talk a bit about this in the episode, and just like public consciousness, it is a reference in something all the time, or used to be a lot. Like if you're a millennial, you probably saw the Simpsons parody of the The Shining before you saw The Shining. I definitely did. Yeah, exactly, and. There's a lot that I love about it, but I also just kind of felt, you know, I love horror and this is not any of the things I love about horror. (laughs) Yeah. And I think going in this time, somehow, even though I went in as we go into things with like a somewhat critical eye, we go into them also with more of a loving eye than normal. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time with it in a way that I never have before. Yeah. And you said when we recorded the episode that like, it was something to do maybe with finishing the book that day and then yes. immediately, yeah. That was huge because it, as we talk about, the movie makes passing reference to so many things that if you had no context for it, like the book, yeah. you would just miss 90% of a lot of the things the movie nods at. Yeah, and it feels like it's something built on top of the book rather than instead of to me. One thing we normally do sort of at the end of these intros, but I want to do now is to speak to our Patreon episodes. Mm because we're going to have one coming out very soon that's a companion to this episode. Do you want to talk about that quickly? Yeah, I'm excited about this one. We're going to have on as a guest my friend Patrick McGinty, who has taught the documentary Room 237 237 times, and (laughs) that is a documentary on the theories of hardcore Shining fans slash scholars, I would say. And so we get to talk about literary criticism and what The Shining may or may not mean. Yeah, it was a fun conversation. And also what it means to love something that much. (laughs) As many people do in Room 237. Do you have any thoughts about The Shining that people should should have in their brain as they enter this episode? Or just thoughts generally? Well wishes? (laughs) Yeah, like, have a good time. And if you haven't read Stephen King, like, I think The Shining is the perfect entry point to his writing like I think this is one of his best books and it will do that thing where you get mad about how young someone was when they wrote something so fair warning <laughs> and he did that like <laughs> twice a year for like a decade <laughs> that New England work ethic man and then kept doing it forever <laughs> yeah he just he got his dream job which was to be in the book factory yeah he sure as hell did he's still <laughs> in it somehow one other thing i want to i want to pitch while we're introing is we've been doing these like spotify mixes for each of our mm-hmm. episodes and we'll have one out for this week you can you can find it in the show notes of wherever you listen on the player but wh- what's a song that you picked for the mix sarah <laughs> Okay, I do want to explain this choice because I think it's kind of cool. When I watched The Shining for this episode, this was the first time that I noticed that Jack appears to die of a heart attack or something. Do you think that happens? (laughs) Yeah, 
Yeah, it's heart attack or a stroke or something at the end. But yeah. heart attack makes, I think, probably a lot more sense. He's running and then he's clutching his general heart area and he's also slurring his words. So yeah, it feels like some like it just never occurred to me before. I was like, and then he sits down because he's a big idiot and he freezes to death. <laughs> but because I had kind of room 237 on the brain, I was also tracking themes and I like to watch horror movies with subtitles because like, that's the genre I think most likely to put something weird kind of quietly in the mix mm. that you might not notice, but a subtitle will tell you that it's happening. And I also noticed for the first time that Jack, as he's starting to go into cardiac arrest or whatever's happening to him in the maze is singing. I think he's singing the lyrics, San Francisco, here I come, right back where I started from. And I was like, that's odd. And then I- I love what your pick is. I love what your pick is. I listened to your mix while running the other day and I love it so much. <laughs> and so, yeah, and so I looked it up and that, like, if he's singing anything, it's California, Here I Come by Al Jolson. And then, of course, you read those words, and if you've ever watched The O.C., <laughs> and you're just like, oh, so in my head canon now, Jack Torrance is singing the theme song to The O.C. by Phantom Planet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's go talk about The Shining. Does it matter to you at all that the owners 
have placed their complete confidence and trust in me and that I have signed a letter of agreement, a contract. Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex <laughs> Steed. I was going for Jack Torrance and it came out Carol Channing, but you get what you get. Also, was that like in the cadence of Here's Johnny? Uh, that was what I was going for. I spent my entire childhood knowing Here's Johnny was a thing from The Shining. It took me until my at least my teens to put two and two together that it was referencing The Tonight Show. <laughs> I only figured that out because I on AMC one time they had one of those like commentary track and type on the bottom thing. Mm. And they're like, this is a reference to The Tonight Show. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. I'm a child. I don't watch <laughs> late night programming. I do watch horror movies, though, obviously. So we just got right to the point. What are we uh, what are we diving into today? Today, we are carrying out a plan that I brought to you several months ago. I'm so excited that you wanted to take on this beast with me which is the shining page to screen. Because I realized today that if we just did the movie, that would be a lot by itself. But I was like, (laughs) let's do two things that are a lot. Yeah, it's a big ass book. It's like a long-ish movie, but it's thematically packed. Yes. Why did you want to do page to screen? So I grew up watching The Shining and understanding that it was supposed to be a masterpiece of horror And never really quite getting it. And then when Room 237 came out, I really loved that because that's a documentary about people's ornate fan theories about The Shining and what all the symbolism in it means. And the idea is basically like Stanley Kubrick is too much of a genius to just tell a satisfying story. And here are ideas about, you know, secret meanings that explain why the characters act like robots sometimes. Mm. And that kind of was the bulk of my relationship to the movie until this point where I was like, it doesn't work for me, but like other people love it as much as I love my weird things. And I love that for them. Yeah. (laughs) And then I read the book because I was on the Stephen King streak when I finished my MFA because an MFA will make writing feel like a dry cracker. It's like you're going (laughs) to cracker school. You're learning how to make all the crackers. And then Stephen King is like... What is the food of Stephen King, Alex? Fancy, but not at all too fancy mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah, like mashed potatoes with nice Parmesan and nice yes. milk. And that's it. That's what makes them fancy. But it's still just mashed potatoes. <laughs> yeah, they don't have any surprising ingredients. No. And maybe sometimes some Brussels sprouts that have been mm. roasted with a nice char and a bunch of bacon. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the literary books, like Misery. <laughs> Do you think this is his most literary book? Like literary capital L? No, I think Misery is his most literary book. Like I have a theory, and I couldn't tell you exactly why because I haven't read it in like 10 years, but when I read it back in the day... I knew that he was going to publish it as a Richard Bachman book. Mm. And the only reason he published it under his own name was because the whole Bachman thing 
came to light and he had to stop using it. He published under Richard Bachman basically because he was writing too fast. And so his publisher was like, if you want to publish more books, like you can do it, but you have to invent a pseudonym to do it under because we can't justify doing like three new Stephen King books a year or something like that. And so he published these books under Richard Bachman and they were like his early books, his weird books, his like darkest books, like The Long Walk, which is ah. And then Misery is like this pretty intense examination of being someone who has had, who has been in the public eye for like 10, 12 years at, the, at that point, and I'm sure has had his quota of terrifying fans. That's like really an author telling on himself. And I guess remember the writing being fantastic in a pretty almost pretentious way that I don't think he allowed himself to do in his other work, really. We should say up front for people who are not familiar with Stephen King's writing, there are two kinds of Stephen King books. <laughs> there are Stephen King books in which he tells on himself, and there are Stephen King books about cool ideas that he had. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And, and both of those categories can be duds or can be amazing. Yes. This The Shining is a book in which Stephen King tells on himself yeah. at the worst time in Stephen King's life, I think. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is it is relentless self-telling on. And I think that is what makes it great. My only thing that I want to say up front, and it's a thing that I'm pretty sure I've said before, I've read this book several times. It was mm -hmm. instrumental for me when I had a deep out of control drinking problem in my mid to late 20s. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people who have drinking problems had a number of things that suggested to me I should do something about it, almost like signs. Mm -hmm. But like when you're so embedded in a substance abuse problem, but the substance abuse problem does everything it can to protect your brain from seeing that you have a substance abuse mm -hmm. problem. And so you kind of have to see symbols in order to realize what you're going through. And then I read The Shining. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a 1,000 page symbol that was like, uh -huh. you gotta fucking get your shit together, man. <laughs> And I did. It's such a cliche to say this sort of thing, but this book is certainly one of several things that saved my life during my 20s. Mm. And I had the opportunity to meet Stephen King in passing and I got to tell him that. And I said, The Shining saved my life. Thank you. And he's like, it saved mine too. Ah. I have a lot of love for this book and what it has done for me. And I have a lot of love for the movie, actually, which I the last mm -hmm. time I saw before we did it for the show is a number of years ago in L.A. I saw it was like a, a pop up movie screening of The Shining out in a park somewhere so I got to see it with mm. a bunch of people which was really nice I'm excited to talk about them and I'd love to hear you tell us what they're about uh, starting with the book first so the book of the shining is about a married couple named Jack and Wendy Torrance and their little son named Danny who's five and how Jack in the opening moments of the book is interviewing for a job at the Overlook Hotel in Colorado where he and his wife and son will stay there over the winter with the caveat that one time not too long ago, the caretaker who did that developed cabin fever, apparently, and chopped up his wife and daughters. Mm. I want to start by differentiating from the movie a little bit by saying that in the book, it's always extremely clear that in Jack, we have the classic Stephen King character in the sense that he's like a working class guy who is always looking over his shoulder. In the meaty first act of this book, we get this whole setup of like what's going on with this family 
And why is it so important that Jack get this job? And why are they in such a desperate place? And a lot of it has to do with the fact that Jack has really struggled with alcoholism recently. It has something to do with why he got fired from his job teaching at this prep school. And he also broke his son's arm at one point in the recent past. And we get that in this incredible scene because we're like so we're so deep in the heads of each of these characters, these three characters at various points. And in the book, there's this description of him breaking Danny's arm and it just being this tiny noise where the past ends and the future begins, basically. Mm. Going into their stay at the Overlook, we know that everything for them is precarious. We know why. And we know that this is a group of people who are like, who all love each other a lot and are extremely attached to each other. We're already beginning to see like how some of that love is more like dependency, you know, and how Jack's dependents have no place to go and no one to take care of them without him. And he has put himself in this position where he has to rise to the occasion and be able to take care of his family without help from anybody. And, you know, it's just like the family alone with its demons. It just feels like the, the most American story imaginable. So this is that passage. He had been drinking a beer and doing the Act 2 corrections when Wendy said the phone was for him and Danny had poured the can of beer all over the pages. Probably to see it foam, see it foam, see it foam. The words played over and over in his mind like a single sick chord on an out-of-tune piano, completing the circuit of his rage. He stepped deliberately toward his three-year-old son, who was looking up at him with that pleased grin, his pleasure at the job of work so successfully and recently completed in Daddy's study. Danny began to say something, and that was when he had grabbed Danny's hand and bent it to make him drop the typewriter eraser and the mechanical pencil he was clenching in it. Danny had cried out a little, no, no, tell the truth, he screamed. It was all hard to remember through the fog of anger, the sick single thump of that one Spike Jones chord, Wendy somewhere asking what was wrong, her voice faint, damped by the inner mist. This was between the two of them. He had whirled Danny around to spank him, his big adult fingers digging into the scant meat of the boy's forearm. Meeting around it in a closed fist, and the snap of the breaking bone had not been loud. Not loud, but it had been very loud. Huge, but not loud. Just enough of a sound to slit through the red fog like an arrow. But instead of letting in sunlight, that sound let in the dark clouds of shame and remorse. The terror, the agonizing convulsion of the spirit. Mm. A clean sound with the past on one side of it and all the future on the other. The sound like a breaking pencil lead or a small piece of kindling when you brought it down over your knee. A moment of utter silence on the other side in respect to the beginning future, maybe. All the rest of his life. Yeah, man. Sitting with this book for the first time in a while, like I haven't read this in maybe six years, six or seven years. Mm-hmm, me too. The title, which is about people stuck at home in a severe winter, carries a whole new meaning after this past year. Mm-hmm. But, you know, seeing it for being a supernatural horror in passing, it's a book about being shut in with a dry drunk, which is mm-hmm. itself substantial, like a, dr- a drunk who is not drinking but has not done any of the work and is still as terrifying as a drunk as a result. And it's not surprising mm-hmm. that that the book Dr. Sleep is fully about doing the work. Like Doc, mm-hmm. Dr. Sleep is about Danny 
doing the AA work. And it's interesting and not surprising in that context. And then also it's obviously about the terror of being locked in with someone who's losing their mind. And also this thing, which makes me think that hereditary is a better film adaptation of this book spiritually than The Shining is Mm. because it's about two people fighting a proxy war of the damage that their parents did to them. Mm-hmm. We learn that Wendy's mom is real difficult and is not a person that Wendy feels like she can go home to. Mm-hmm. And Jack's dad is exactly the kind of drunk that Jack is, exactly down to the various forms of behavior, and didn't deal with any of that. This book somehow deals with all of that. And I think when you say Stephen King book to a lot of people, they yeah. they imagine a very particular... People have read Stephen King books is the thing. It's like they, sure. they see covers and they sort of make a little mental movie based on that. And they're like, sounds gross or whatever, you know? like Exactly. And this is a person who, in one of their most popular books, dealt with all of that mm-hmm. in an incredibly deep way. You know, you asked this question of Christopher when we talked about Clueless and you said, mm. are teen and kids movies a place where you can get away with talking about certain things that maybe you can't elsewhere in entertainment Mm -hmm. you know i think that that is very much the case for horror and sci-fi is these are places where we're prepared to have conversations we're not prepared to have another arena and i think this is probably the thing that i most love about this book and that gave me the biggest greg against the movie for the longest time is that like the book is such a rare example of a letter from within the patriarchy telling on itself and being like, it's bad. It's really, really bad. I mean, I honestly feel like the hotel is just like the patriarchy because there's all these voices mm. like in American masculinity in the 60s and 70s as Stephen King and men his age are growing up that are like, kill her, you know? <laughs> right. But seriously. Right. And he's and he's doing every, you know, I mean, he's imperfectly trying to do everything he can. He's doing everything he can with the tools that he has. And you you said this perfectly. I mean, this this book is ultimately very much about codependency without ever using the word codependency and all of the things that stem from that. But he's imperfectly doing all of the work. He stopped drinking, which for anyone who has someone who has a deep drinking problem or or is considered an alcoholic knows that that's not enough often, that there needs to be some other stuff that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. He's doing all of it. And like you say, the hotel as patriarchy is essentially nudging him at every corner to do worse. It's also like a great example of just what it was to be a person in a society at the time that they're like, well, recently, like someone who had your exact job murdered his entire family so do you think you're the kind of person who'd do that (laughs) (laughs) they're not like maybe the problem (laughs) is us and we should offer like resources to the caretaker they're like we've enacted a strict no hiring murderers policy so uh (laughs) be honest jack (laughs) self-report that itself is is so astute because there have been endless factory jobs that have been revealed as essentially like suicide machines that push people in the direction of suicide and what they what they try to do is hire their way out of the problem and not actually change the job but for someone who hasn't read the book the reason jack gets hired is this hotel is very expensive to run year round Mm -hmm. to functionally shut down the hotel which is itself is an inexpensive and laborious process they would just Mm -hmm. hire a person to stay at the overlook 
through the winter season to keep the furnace going and to keep stuff in repair. Mm -hmm. And the first time they tried to do this, the person who did this, Grady, murdered his family. Mm -hmm. And as Sarah just said, their workaround was not to eat the cost of shutting down the hotel over the, you know, fully mechanically shutting down the hotel over the winter. It is to hire another person and hope for the fucking best. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And like, and if he kills his whole family, like Grady was in 1970. If it happens once a decade, like, I don't know, maybe it still amortizes out better than, you know, doing repairs at the beginning and at the beginning of the season. This is a building that doesn't learn lessons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this book loosely takes place in Colorado, I guess, because mm-hmm. he was inspired by a hotel there once. I don't know. He's like, I know what that place is like. <laughs> yeah. This book has Maine all over it in many different ways, yeah. like many different Stephen King books. And I am in Maine now, and I grew up in Maine. And the one thing I do want to say is I don't know if Maine has a higher domestic murder suicide rate Mm. than other places but i certainly growing up noticed a lot of it in the news Mm -hmm. and i don't know the statistics on it i don't know when it happens i don't know if it happens more here than elsewhere but that piece of it feels very main like in having grown up here Mm. there is very often a story in which people didn't you know it's a very very typical way of telling a story that is that is brutal in retrospect but like people didn't notice there was anything wrong and then suddenly Mm -hmm. there's a murder suicide within a house where someone kills their family Mm -hmm. and that felt very much of Stephen King land well and so this is a thing about the movie a couple of days ago I was like Sarah give the movie a chance and I like (laughs) Sat down, and I got high, and I watched the movie and just, like, experienced it. And I was like, no, this movie is really good. It's doing its own thing, and I don't understand why you would do this when you have that source material. But, like, whatever, you know? It's very strange and very special. I feel as if one of the things that I've always disliked about the movie and now actually have come around on is the fact that, like... In the book, Jack is someone who, like, loves his family, really wants to not be like his father, is, like, running so hard to escape being like his father that he, of course, his father sneaks up on him and he becomes exactly that, tale as old as time, and is someone who is really struggling with his demons, and that's the the arc of him in the book. And I think Jack in the movie at the beginning is, like, someone who wouldn't mind killing his family. <laughs> just isn't super motivated to do it right now. Yeah, it's fucking Jack Nicholson. Yeah. He just looks like a guy who wants to kill his family. <laughs> he just does. Yeah, he's just doing, like, a, an adequate impression of someone who doesn't want to kill his family. He's giving it 30%. Yeah. And then when he finally does decide to go slightly crazier and come after everyone... You know, I was watching the scene where he chases Wendy up the stairs and I was like, this feels so real, actually, because like people are like this. Men are like this. Mm. Like they'll make fun of you as they're terrorizing you. And like that's real. I have this theory now that like you become complicit a little bit in Jack's abuse because that's like the that's the scene where people feel the most like real people mm-hmm. so far in the entire movie. Like people only come alive when the hotel gets its way. And, like, the part where he's, like, you think maybe he should be taken to a doctor, you know? It's just, like, that's the most entertaining the movie has been to this point. And you're really, I don't know, I can't help but enjoy it. And I'm, like, is this how Jack feels? (laughs) 
I was wondering how many of Jack Nicholson or Stanley Kubrick's partners watched this movie mm. and was like, was like, ugh. Yeah. This supernatural element of like a haunted hotel is the thing that protects you from this being 1000% upsetting and depressing. Right. You're saved from the supernaturality because if you were just left with this relationship acting in the way that it is on the surface, it would at best be fundamentally depressing in all of the behaviors you recognize in you, your own relationships, yourself, other people. Mm -hmm. And at worst, it would be absolutely relatable. Yeah, even Anne Rule, who was pioneering true crime at this period, wasn't like, give me a story about a man who axe murdered or tried to axe murder his wife and kid. Right. She was like, hey, let's do some stranger murders. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you are going to watch the movie... Mm-hmm and you're not interested in watching the movie generally, or it's not something you're immediately drawn to. I liked the movie most this viewing when I watched the movie literally the day I stopped reading the book. Uh, it's like a tribute movie. Yeah, it's like fan fiction or yes. something. It's like AU fan fiction. Yes, it has a lot of the components, mm -hmm. you know, and there are a lot of lines that are in the book. It functions similarly, but it is, it's a bit of a remix so in room 237, one of the five people they interview is this woman named Julie Kearns who, you know, attempted to map the overlook. That's her big thing is like how it works or doesn't work spatially. And I think this is one of the things that I most like about the movie, that I think it's like a masterpiece and like how can you profoundly unsettle an audience partly through story, but mostly through like their subconscious awareness that the spatial reality of the movie doesn't make sense. And through all of this creepy music and subliminal stuff. Mm. How would you summarize how the movie is different from the book? The movie is like if you took the book and then just took like 80% of the stuffing out of it. And by stuffing, I don't mean like extraneous material or like cutting the fat. I mean like the book. I mean like if you just thinned out 80% of the book. Mm. And also there's stuff that's changed. And one of the things that I think was an inevitable change given that they made this movie in the late 70s is the hedge animals. Yes. Because in the book, they don't have a hedge maze. They have topiary animals that come to life and try to get you. And one of them is like a dog and one of them is a bunny and like... That is exactly the kind of Stephen King idea that Stephen King can make scary and no one else can. <laughs> yes. Especially not if they're directing. I feel like he never would have even attempted this. But what if Stanley Kubrick had done like a full on like a Harryhausen stop motion animation yeah. topiary animal sequence? So I feel like the thing that we got robbed of with Kubrick making this is we didn't get to see a faithful adaptation made in the late 70s, early 80s. Yes. It being of that fabric, it being weird, you know, weird stop motion or practical effects and puppetry. <laughs> things that could have been in this movie. Don't you think that there is very possibly a reality where like Stanley Kubrick made Jaws and Steven Spielberg made The Shining. Yes, you had brought this up, and I and, and I agree, but I'd love to hear you explain why Steven Spielberg is a better fit for this movie. It actually makes more sense for Steven Spielberg to be the person who adapted The Shining rather than Jaws, because if you read Peter Benchley Jaws, it's like this weird, dark, kind of alienating book that I cannot say enough negative things about. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes more sense that Kubrick would be attracted to that, but I guess people are attracted to people that aren't like them, or it's just how timing works out. But 
The Shining is totally Steven Spielberg's kind of a thing. You know, it's about a struggling American nuclear family, mommy, daddy, baby, thrown into a terrifying situation. And I guess the only thing that makes it non-typical Steven Spielberg material is that the the daddy is the dinosaur. Mm. (laughs) In my head, I started doing this fantasy casting where it's like, I would have cast like Amy Irving and like Keith Carradine. Yeah, that's great. As the Torrances. Because those are people who you look at them and you're like, wow, like they don't look at all like anyone's going to get murdered, which is really what the book is going for. <laughs> Keith Carradine, especially at that moment, too. I, I mean, I feel like Jack in the book is also like in his like late 20s. I know, right? <laughs> At his most. And then you have Jack Nicholson in 1980. He was like 41, 42 when they were filming this, I think. And he looked every year of it. I mean, honestly, like a 1970s, early 40s is like the way people look in their late 50s now. (laughs) Yes, it is. People were like, yeah, I'm getting a little wrinkly. The doctor thinks I need more sun and cigarettes. (laughs) The other thing that's super hard to convey because it's it's so unreal is Danny in the book is so intelligent. Yes. Danny in the book is five years old and is a level of bright that is eerie and maybe has the overall wherewithal of like an eight or nine year old. Mm -hmm. And it would be very challenging to find the right child actor to play that role. Yes. And to convey that inner and outer life. And they had to literally externalize his outer life in this movie Mm. to make it make any sense. Yeah, you're right. As far as Kubrick was concerned. To me, like one of the most conspicuously missing things in the movie is like, I mean, they throw out all this stuff in terms of like, there's this big scrapbook about the overlook. So we learn about, Mm. you know, it has all this weird mobster history. Jack's reading about that. He wants to write a book on it, which honestly, Jack, like maybe publishing, I know publishing was a very different industry in the 70s and they could publish a lot more garbage. But like, really? You think people want to read a book about a fucking hotel in Colorado that mobsters stayed at like at every other hotel? Come on. (laughs) Name a hotel mobsters haven't stayed at. There's a book. (laughs) When I said this to you before is I think like Jack's primary thing is like, it's scary because people died there. Yeah. And it's like, Jack, you're from New England. Everyone has died everywhere in New England. Like you pull into a gas station. They're like, Paul Revere died here. (laughs) That was good. Thank you. (laughs) We didn't get to why Steven Spielberg is the best. Yeah, there's the themes of just a lot of hotel history is missing, sort of what Jack is encountering in his conversations with all these ghosts. There's this whole like wasp slight motif, which I think is great. Mm. There's just a lot of interiority for all these different characters. And Danny, too, which I think Stephen King does something which for me kind of makes it all work which is he's like he's not a normal five-year-old he has the shining and I'm like I guess five-year-olds with the shining can't spell the word sweet but are also incredibly articulate in their (laughs) thoughts like fine it's great I love it go for it but also like in this movie like these characters don't even relate to each other like these people are like the last three unpopped kernels of popcorn bouncing around in the bottom of the bag they don't at all And the book is, like, it's so much about their relationships and about this, like, pretty strong triangle of a nuclear family, like, doing its best to stay together. And maybe that's not the right thing, but, like, it seems like they have a shot 
And then Jack kind of remains heroic at the end. Like, spoilers, Jack, my understanding is that he bashes himself in the head with the roke mallet. Mm -hmm. Danny has been premonitionizing that there's going to be this bloody roke mallet that Jack is going to come after them with. I do think it was wise of Kubrick to not have (laughs) Jack Nicholson, like, charging after his wife and kid with a basically a croquet mallet. It's not quite the same. You know, it's just like the different mediums read differently and they need different weapons. And so Danny has been having this premonition of the bloody mallet and it turns out that Jack uses it basically on himself before the hotel can successfully take over his body, which is he's doing in the exorcist ending there. Right. That's significant because we hear over and over that, like, just because you can see the future doesn't mean that it turns out that way. Yeah. You know, Danny sees the bloody rook mallet and you assume that the direction that that's going in is his head is going to get bashed in. But what ends up happening is that Jack ends up bashing his head in. You know, Stephen King loves loves history and he loves change in fate. Loves it. Yeah. That's what Stephen King is into. You're right. I think that some of these missed opportunities are just working narratively around technical limitations. Mm -hmm. Is one of the other missed opportunities is like the hotel blows up. Yeah, that is the other big spectacular ending of the book. And there's this whole thing with the boiler. Another thing that happens in the movie that I kind of love is that Wendy does all of the work. Jack does nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. And I also love that Jack and Stephen King's The Shining is writing the whole time. Like, he's working very hard. Both of these men have just created a version of themselves, I think. And so Stephen King's Jack is like he's a very hardworking hotel caretaker and writer. He is, like, re-roofing a wing of it at some point. Mm-hmm. He's, like, working on his play. Like, he really is writing real stuff. He just still is no match for the the hotel and, and all of his trauma and, and his dad and and everything. And Kubrick's Jack, and I feel like this is like Kubrick's shadow self, yells at his wife, makes her do everything, and isn't even writing. (laughs) (laughs) He only writes one line over and over notoriously. He doesn't actually write anything. Which is like, oh, is that like making people do 150 takes of something, Stanley? (laughs) You just want to just do it again and again for some reason? The hotel blows up because the boiler ends up being neglected. And this whole idea is that, like, over time, Jack has to tend to the boiler. Mm -hmm. If he doesn't tend to the boiler many times a day, it will eventually explode. Mm -hmm. So, like, that's a huge metaphor about Jack. And this is set up in the very beginning. And there's the line, she creeps, which is delightful. And it's very fun. And you're just, you're reading it. And you're like, I think something's going to happen with that boiler. And then you're right. And it's great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly. exactly. And it's the same thing that happens to the man, which if he doesn't do the work every day, he explodes. Oh, boy. He's not living up to his own expectations and he's taking it out on everyone around him. Mm-hmm. He's a failed writer. He's had some minor successes, like he's gotten published in Esquire. He's published in men's magazines. Men's mags. You know, he's supposed to be writing his great book that's going to get him out of this mess. But he feels, and this is the thing that he always lashes out wrongfully, he lashes out against Wendy for, is that he sees Wendy looking at him and in her looking at him, he feels like she's seeing him break her son's arm, their son's arm. Mm -hmm. And 
whether or not she's seeing that, and she probably is, because how could you not see that? Mm-hmm. Really, the thing that he's frustrated about is him seeing her is him seeing himself witness who he is. Mm-hmm. And he hates her for that. Mm-hmm. And the only way he knows how to be because of <laughs> the micro travesty that is his life, which is having been raised by someone who is exactly like he is now. And the macro travesty, which is, again, he lives in the literal patriarchy that it constantly encourages him to shut out the feelings that he's having by literally killing her. Yeah. You know, he goes mad. Yeah. Jack's childhood is such a presence in the book. Like there's this whole heartbreaking scene where he describes this one instance where his dad, who had a cane by this point, like picked up his cane and just like beat their mother with it sitting at the table Mm. for dinner just because he felt that she looked at him weird. Yeah. And just how that becomes how he feels about Wendy looking at him. And it's like, if you have a guilty conscience... And you're narcissistically projecting stuff onto people, then like you will feel that everyone is judging you always because you are always judging yourself. And everyone just becomes a mirror to your own guilt because you know that you broke your son's arm. Right. So much about particularly sobriety work and like steps based work and anonymous group work is about reconciling your relationship with codependence which itself is a relation in a healthy relationship with a need for control mm-hmm. i mean even in people who were raised in alcoholic households but are not themselves alcoholics you sometimes find solace in going to al-anon which is about unlearning the lessons you learned about having to live with an alcoholic which mm-hmm. is itself a difficult thing because you always have to learn you know cod- codependence in one way or another is like being within a unit of people and understanding how to be within that unit exclusively. And you only know how to relate to people in one way or another based on how you learn how to survive in that unit. Mm-hmm. And often it's about centering around the unreasonable and irrational desire for control that the alcoholic had. Or and it mm-hmm. doesn't even have to be an alcoholic. It's just someone who requires that control in one way or another. Mm-hmm. What that person hates especially is being seen because the worst thing is to be seen and realize, you know, if you see yourself being that way, you realize pretty nakedly that you have no control and you have no method for dealing with that. And we see that in Jack all the time in this book. Mm -hmm. I don't know where in Stephen King's substance abuse he was at this time. And I know he relapsed in in the early eighties for sure, Mm -hmm. but this is someone who's like just starting to figure their shit out with regard to their substance abuse issues. Yeah. There's a part where Wendy is like, how could Jack be drunk? There's nothing in this hotel but cooking sherry. And I was like, so this feels like it was before Stephen King started drinking unorthodox things around the house. Yes. Every time she said that, I was like, oh, don't rule out the cooking sherry. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. Have you not seen Blast from the Past, Wendy, a movie that comes out 20 years after the book you're in? I was in situations when I was fucked up and I couldn't get to anything and I would look for, you know, like computer keyboard cleaner, like Mm. anything, you know, anything to bridge the gap. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, you know, when she said that, the other thing that spoke to me from that is, again, speaking to the dry drunk element where she's like, he's not. And I think that this is a lot of people's idea about about substance abuse or any sort of having to reconcile the thing that you're working through Mm -hmm. is that it's not just the thing. 
It's what you do in the absence of the thing, too. Mm-hmm. Jack has stopped drinking, and that's great. But, like, if he's not addressing all the reasons he is the way that he is when he's not drinking, he's still a fucking nightmare. It's also, like, you can't entirely blame the hotel. It's like Jack also had the hubris <laughs> to be like, let's do it. I don't need help. Yeah. I don't need contact with anyone except my wife and five-year-old. It'll be great. It's like, really, Jack? Like, don't they have jobs in Denver? Like, I know there's a yeah. recession, but... I love your read of the, the hotel being the patriarchy, too, because that speaks especially well when we have this scene in the book when Wendy's finally like, we need to get out of here. Mm-hmm. Danny's having a hard time. Danny's had some spells. Danny's been shining like crazy. <laughs> Danny's shining his butt off. We need to get <laughs> out of here. And so she, in a really shitty conversation on Jack's end, she finally convinces him that they need to get on a snowmobile and get out and two things about this Mm -hmm. one there's no more manner of a take a liberal manner of a take than how much jack hates snowmobiles like there is (laughs) there is like there are people who love snowmobiles and there's people like me and stephen king who hate snowmobiles and everything they represent and i love that it comes out in this (laughs) may i suggest a silent alternative the dog sled. Like, that's beautiful. That makes sense to me. So he goes out and he has to go and get the snowmobile and figure out how to get it out. And he's hating it. And he's like, we can't go on the snowmobile because it'll be noisy. He's just like making up stupid reasons left and right. It's great. There's nuts reasons. And it is the hotel in its spiritual nature that convinces him to when when he finds the battery for the snowmobile to to discard it to throw it into the snow but if you again if you think about this as literal patriarchy it's perfect that he's like yeah. he's like i can just make this adhere to my take by getting rid of our ability to actually do this yes oh my god that scene is beautiful and it is long and like <laughs> that is one of the challenges of adapting king is that like I think Stephen King has like this almost Victorian novelist kind of ability to sort of he integrates backstory extremely well where like you'll have backstory or like character history as like literally the backing to the scene that's happening right now. So you just have this warp and weft that are very organically connected. So it's like Jack is roofing and he's thinking about how he got fired from Stovington, and you just kind of keep layering them on top of each other back and forth. Mm. And it's really compelling. And, like, that snowmobile scene, it's like, I mean, you couldn't adapt that, or I don't know how you would, because it's, like, it's him in his head with the hotel voices, but also, like, with his wounded pride that the hotel voices are aiding. It's like he's giving them the, like, moist area to grow on. Yes, I never saw the Steven Weber Shining that came out in the late 90s. I haven't seen that either. I think we should watch that eventually and roast it gently if we need to. Although Steven Weber is great. So. He is great. And he's, a, and he's a narrator of several Stephen King books, probably because of that. I'm mm-hmm. not sure. But it was more faithful, as I understand it. It was more faithful to the text. And it was more of an adaptation of the book. And I mm-hmm. think the hard task ahead of anyone who's going to adapt this i know that i know that you rightfully feel like not everything should be turned into a prestige series the shining would have benefited from it. no i agree i was thinking that I, and i was like i think enough time has passed for like a faithful soup to nuts shining like yes. you know you could do four to six episodes and whoever the amy irving and keith carradine mm. of, of 2021 are throw them in there yeah this i mean i think a lot of stephen king works 
need the kind of adaptation that we now have the ability to do because there actually is that much there to to pull out and to represent. Exactly, because I think the issue is making Jack not fully evil. Yes. The issue is that there are so many things that aren't like outright likable about him, but he's not slobbering Jack Nicholson at all. Yeah, that sounds like a Trump nickname. Yeah. <laughs> slobbering Jack. He's like a 60s anti-war kid. Yeah. Like that's a funny little fact about him. There are all these little things about him where like there are certainly likable things about him. There's relatable things if you are a writer, no doubt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's kind of what makes the tragedy of him turning in the way that he does as effective as it is. With Jack Nicholson, it's like, you're like, why are these people married? Like, what is their relationship (laughs) about? None of these people ever really talk to each other. And you're just like, it's, I cannot picture, like, did you fall in love? Did you have, like, a, were you more interested in each other before Danny came along? Did he get married because Danny came along? Like, I have, I have no clue. Mm, I tend to often see the relationship between my parents and parents in movies and every movie that we see. But, you know, my dad was decades older than my mom. And I'm not saying that that's the relationship here, although there is a substantial age difference here. There is in the Jack Nicholson. Yeah, there's, I think he's like 12 years older than Shelley Duvall. It reminds me of how parents like mine came together, which is just like they were conveniently mm. around each other and then they decided to be together. Yeah, that sounds about right. And it reminds me of Five Easy Pieces, Jack Nicholson, where he's in a relationship with a woman he clearly started hating like 20 minutes after they first got together. And it's like, well, why bother to have a relationship at all if you hate her this much? Like, you can just have sex with people. I agree. I mean, I think that the book does a a wonderful job of painting how these people love each other, where their overlap is, where sometimes Mm -hmm. two of them get along better in particular ways. Like Jack gets along with Danny especially well and there's resentment from when, like, there's a lot of interesting dynamics that happen there. But the thing that, again, that isn't covered in the movie, I don't know that it could be covered in the movie, is a lot of the reason why Wendy feels stuck with Jack outside of just her love and hope for the best. The alternative is a divorce, which at the time is still Mm -hmm. exceptionally taboo. And it's personally taboo as well, because her dad divorced her mom. Her mom became the shittiest person on earth as maybe as a result to Wendy. And Wendy Mm -hmm. doesn't possibly want to let that happen. And how resonant is it that all of this garbage that happens to these people happens in part because they don't know another option from being away from each other. Yeah. And also, like, how easy would it be for Wendy to get a job? What's she going to do? What is she qualified to do? Like, they're already very tenuously hanging on with Jack as their wage earner. Like, the economic anxiety that is everywhere in the book is really, I don't know if it really shows up in the movie. Mm. I guess, like, when Jack is talking about, like, well, he could write his own ticket if he left the Overlook now and he could work in a car wash and shovel snow. But, like... He's fully ranting and raving by that point. Like, I don't know if we even need to buy that in the world of the movie. It's a rendition of something that happens in the book where he does walk through, you know, like every every (laughs) Stephen King snapshot. Where the hotel shows him that he can't leave the hotel. Exactly. And for five pages, we see all the work options he has, which are going door to door and shoveling and working at a gas station for $25 a week and all of these other things. Stephen King loves the studs turkle jobs. He really does. Let's talk about them. (laughs) 
So I'm not prepared and I'm not interested in because I do not have the authority to do this to talk about the magical Negro trope. Mm. I'm not skilled enough or know enough about the intricacies of that to deconstruct it in the book. But I would love Mm. to talk about the difference between Dick in the book and Dick in the movie. I don't know what the impressions are with, with it in the book. I know that Stephen King has a magical Negro problem. I feel like that is a thing that comes up Mm -hmm. in criticisms of a lot of his work overall. Especially in this period, probably. But I think if anyone did a disservice to Dick, it was Stanley Kubrick. Yes, it was, especially because... Oh my God, is it Scatman or Scatman? Scatman. He's not Jewish, it's Scatman. Okay. (laughs) I love Scatman. Scatman Crothers. It's a law firm. Scatman and Crothers. (laughs) Also, it's at a service to Scatman Crothers, who had to do, I think, 150 takes of the scene where he and Danny are talking about The Shining. And I think like 60 takes of himself getting axed Mm. in the chest. Right. Which, by the way, the big difference between the book and the movie is that Dick survives in the book and ends up as kind of the heroic figure in the end. Right. Or the least complicated heroic figure. And yeah, in the movie, he does what he does in the book, which is to receive a shining from Danny and realize that they're in trouble and tries to beat the weather or get through the terrible weather, as it turns out, up to the Overlook, and then gets the hotel and immediately gets axe murdered by Jack. And you're like, great, well, I'm surprised. I've definitely been surprised. (laughs) (laughs) I love his character so much in the book. He also, like, he's given as much of an interior life as any of the family members. Like, he is by far the most important character aside from them. Yes, absolutely. And he and he has this love for Danny. Like yeah. he realizes that Danny can shine early on. He has a conversation in their heads they share together. And we learn a lot about him. We learn a lot about his internal life. I certainly feel uncomfortable about several parts where Stephen King talks about race a bit with, within his lived experience. Stephen, I can use the N-word right now, King. Yeah, he also just like, even outside of that, he makes reference to he's like this is like the civil rights movement or whatever yeah yeah i mean it's like that sort of thing and i'm like i don't know Stephen. maybe we should stay away but like maybe we should stick to what we know which is (laughs) working with machines in western maine in the 1960s which is a wonderful area that you can get a lot out of such as the mangler (laughs) yeah exactly like surviving an alcoholic father being an alcoholic like just stick to what you know working in a commercial dye shop at night when you're in high school or whatever terrifying thing. But I I do like him as a character and I feel like the huge disservice that happens is we learn all these things about him. We like him. He's looking out for Danny. He has a rich internal life, external life as well. He does all this different stuff. And in the movie, as you described in our text exchange, he just lists some foods (laughs) and then he gets murdered. Like that's all that we have from this guy. And he has this conversation with Danny that they had to do one million takes for it's funny because before I knew that was like the bajillion take scene I was watching it and I was like why is it like this like what are you doing Stanley like what are you telling me by like just all these like wooden interaction after wooden interaction like what is the goal here like help me help you help me to understand your movie and then I was like you did 150 takes 
of that? Like, why? Yes. So, and also, Shelly Duvall. So, like, they were filming the scene where Wendy is crying hysterically, backing up the staircase, waving the bat at Jack for three weeks. They just did take after take, three weeks, every take, I think she was crying. Yeah, he doesn't seem well. Stanley? Yeah. No. He seems like someone who who stares at a woman and a little child and their tiny figures in a maze. And, like, I just also feel like a lot of movies are a metaphor for the act of making that movie. Yes. This is a film where he, Kubrick, abused his performers and, like, did a lot of stuff that you could do because you were a director and can do because you're a director. I honestly, I don't understand the rationale behind doing this number of takes of anything. And I feel like often, too, when you hear those stories, people are like, and then we used the first one anyway. Ha ha. And it's like, like Anne Hathaway said that about Les Mis. And it's like, aren't you mad? Like, don't you want (laughs) to kill that guy? And also, if you killed him, he wouldn't have made cats. (laughs) And it's worth thinking about. (laughs) I honestly, I don't know. Is it a flex? Is it just something you do because you can? It's something you do because you are neurotic. Mm-hmm. That's a big piece of it. I think it's a control thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not an auteur. I'm in video production. And we do takes to make sure we have enough. You're a valley pornographer, if anything. That I am. And I can't imagine <laughs> having, I just, I, 30 seems excessive. Yeah. 90 is like something's going on. 90 is like you can't stop yourself and no one is powerful enough to stop you. This is the height, if not sort of the beginning of the decline of that golden age of the auteur as well. Thank God, honestly, kind of. (laughs) You nailed it in saying like no one was powerful enough to stop you. I think a lot of these guys were like, no one's powerful enough to stop me and I will show you. (laughs) I guarantee that someone is not going to do better crying in their second or their third week of takes than they did in their first week. Unless your goal is to psychologically destroy them, in which case like... Don't work with actors, work with psychological experiment subjects and get a grant. (laughs) You know, Altman, who is also notoriously a dick, but in a way different way, like just like an extremely different way. He seemed like a laissez-faire dick. He was one of those kinds of guys who like, if he was just done with you kind of irrationally, you know, he was like a bit of an alcoholic too, but he was just done with you. Mm -hmm. He was done with you and he'd be a dick and, or he would just never address Mm -hmm. you again. And it was hard to tell why or how, especially if you were one of his kids. (laughs) At the end of every day, there was a party where everyone would watch the dailies together. Mm. And I feel like that level of opening it up in that, like, this is a group effort, like, we're doing this together, Mm. really changes the dynamic of, like, what you would allow yourself to get away with. And I don't get the sense Mm -hmm. that Kubrick was ever like, this is a party and we're all a part of the thing. (laughs) Right. Like, I want you to tell me what should be in this movie. Like, and not everyone has to do that, you know. It's funny that you brought up Spielberg because Spielberg had a very similar proximate relationship with Kubrick in Aberration. Oh, yeah. And then when Kubrick died before he could make AI, Spielberg made AI for him. Which is just so funny to think about, because, like, they could not be more different. So different. (laughs) And yet at the same time, they're both obsessed with getting you to feel stuff. Yes. And it's just that Kubrick in this wants you to feel dread, and he's doing everything he can to get that out of you. And Steven Spielberg likes different emotions, generally. Does Kubrick only traffic in dread? No, 
I don't know. Strange Love is not dried, but... So, I mean, I really love Strange Love. I don't know. I mean, this yeah, uh, enjoying The Shining as much as I did this time made me want to go through and, you know, watch his movies in succession. I do think that Dread is one of his, like, major <laughs> food groups from what I've experienced over the years. One of the things I do find so memorable and so enjoyable about it is just how it fucks with your sense of space and how you understand subconsciously, even if you don't notice consciously, that the spatial reality you're in doesn't line up. It's uncomfortable. And I feel like there's some, like, we have so many dreams, I think, humans do about our houses or houses from the past or oh, yes. places we have lived or like finding secret rooms or secret doors. I don't know. There's something about understanding like what is creepy on a level that is more essential than story that I think is happening there. Absolutely. And yeah, it's usually one of two things or both overlapping. It's dread or disorientation. Well, it's it's funny. I was just going to say, I feel like the book is about the survival of the family. And it isn't really because Jack still dies. Like the end result is basically the same. And actually like patriarchy, metaphorically, if that's how we want to see it, gets destroyed more because the hotel blows up. So the ghosts get outwitted. Mm. I really love the way the book ends, which is with Danny and Wendy coming down to Florida and staying with Dick Halloran and they all go fishing. He has usurped Jack he is the man who the the woman and the child are with now in the final scene, at least, not in the long term. And it made me think, too, that the scene with Grady in the book is is pretty similar to the movie. Like, a lot of the dialogue seems to come right from there. And But there's more language about, you know, you were brought here by the management, not Ullman, but the hotel. The hotel is the management. Mm. You know, just thinking about the concept of, your son is trying to bring an outside party into the situation. Right. That's about Dick Halloran trying to intervene in the hotel's plan, but it's also about Jack feeling usurped by Dick Halloran and this idea of, like, I can take care of it. I can take care of my family. Like, no one needs to take my place. Right, and this is also where they use the N-word pretty prolifically. Yes. That's who's coming to usurp. Right. Dick Halloran ends up again, like Wendy and Danny end up down living with him. Or at least staying for a while. But he's like he is the the enduring father figure type. He's the one who has survived. Maine's previous governor, Paul LePage, who I think age wise would actually probably be around Jack's age. Mm. He's notorious for so many things. Like he, he many times when Trump was coming up or, or running, people looked to LePage and were like, this is who you should look to for understanding what this is all going to be mm. like. And everyone was correct. One of the many things he said about worrying about drug dealers coming to the state is he described them more or less all as black. Mm -hmm. And by saying that they were coming and impregnating our women, Women. Mm -hmm. This is an attitude that Stephen King from having come up in the state and like they're from the same sorts of places in this state that he's yeah. like very, very familiar, very familiar with. One of the things that Stephen King does seem to know how to depict accurately is like the casually horrifying racism of like yes. middle aged men in mid-century America. Absolutely. It's obviously still alive and well, but it looks a very, I mean. There's so, again, there are so many pieces I was, I was texting you about. Um, what is the guy's name? Is it Walton or Watson? Who's the Watson? Yeah. Watson, who theoretically is from Colorado is the most main character I've ever read in his 
random, like kind of right wing, kind of populist, mm-hmm. k- kind of salty, but definitely wise descriptions of like how yeah. to run the hotel and what's going on around him. Yeah, Stephen King just can't how he is he is Maine. Yeah. Like, he is Maine. Everything he writes feels like Maine. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's important because there's like a lot of great Maine literature, but not of the kind that like millions of people have tended to read all the time. No, there's only two greats uh, because of how they speak to and what Maine is. Mm-hmm. And it's it's Stephen King being Stephen King, obviously, and his his oeuvre, like all of mm-hmm. it. There's Carolyn Shoots the Beans of Egypt, Maine, mm-hmm. and all of the, there, there, it's a series. There's been like five or six books that have come out since, but that's the, the most notorious one. That is how another kind of Maine is. Mm-hmm. It is exactly correct in its weird darkness mm. uh, that that this state is there's <laughs> the two people who write about Maine most honestly in the way that I recognize the most write about its darkness from different perspectives well and I feel like that's that's what's great about Stephen King and I don't even know where anti-king bias comes from like I've said before I tend to doubt anything that is as popular as he is but then I like went on a Stephen King bender after I finished grad school and I was like, oh my God, like, I love these books. Like, I love caring about characters this much. And like, there's Mm. very few authors who've been able to get me to have that experience reading a novel in adulthood. And Stephen King can like pretty reliably do it. And I, I do feel like what people probably who haven't read his work don't imagine is in there is like, this real, this pretty intense commitment to writing about like people and relationships and like, what is it to be someone's child? What is it to love an addict? What is it to be an addict? What is it to try and claw your way out of financial precarity? What is it like to become a father, to become a mother, like just parenthood and like just the like bread and butter of sort of the American human condition? Like I think he was also kind of born right in the fillet of the boomer generation. And I feel like he Mm. spoke to, you know, to a generation of people like, trying to not repeat the exact same mistakes of their parents as as they had kids and tried to make their way in the world. And just like the supernatural elements or the horror elements always seem like a way to to make the human experience dynamic, basically. Like I've been listening gradually to the audiobook of Gerald's game and like that's got a great horror premise, but it's also just it's about a middle-aged woman left alone with her thoughts like that's what the book really is yeah that's huge i think it's probably a new phenomenon for a lot of people to have have sit still for a long enough time over the course of a year to truly hear what their anxiety is saying Mm. you know it's like one thing to just like feel feel overwhelming crippling anxiety which i uh have have certainly felt and it's another to have the space and time to listen to what it's saying to you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people have had that this time, this time around. Yeah. And then have <laughs> and to de-glove your hand to get out of the cuffs eventually. Yes. That's what Stephen King is doing all the time. Yeah. He's giving the anxiety, he's giving the anxiety some words. <laughs> right. Like there are all kinds of different journeys people go on, but I do feel like one of the basic journeys in fiction is like you start off knowing what you want and you get what you need and you have to sacrifice a part of your old fake self to grow. 
And sometimes that means you have to deglove your hand. <laughs> sometimes that means you have to bash your head in with a with a mallet in order to move forward. Sometimes you got to do that, yeah. And sometimes you have to write um, a fictional alter ego and have him do that for you as part of your recovery. <laughs> <laughs> we know who the dad is, Jack Torrance. Who, Sarah, is the daddy? Okay, so in my opinion, Wendy is the daddy because she's the one who's taking care of the hotel the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> Explain. <laughs> well, okay. So we talk about this in the episode, how in the book, Jack actually is doing his job and writing um, because Stephen King doesn't know how to do only one job. He's never just, you know, it's been working since he was five. In Kubrick's version, Jack is doing nothing. Like he is either pretending to write or he is staring brutally or you know, talking to imaginary or ghostly bartenders. And Wendy is just like quietly, unassumingly, without even mentioning it, just doing his entire job. Like, I love the scene where we watch, like, I think she actually is working on the boiler, which is such a big plot point in the book. And she's just like going around with her overall dress and her toolbox and just taking care of it. She does the whole thing. She does all of the work. The entire time. Yeah, she takes care of the kids, she makes the food, she takes care of the hotel. Like, if someone asked her to write a novel, I'm sure she could do that too. So I'm going to pick my daddy not from the movie, but from the book. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know, I can't even remember his name. It's been so long since I read the book. Is it Watson? Three whole weeks, and it's Watson. That's exactly right. <laughs> He's maybe the son of the former owners of the hotel, but we learned that kind of... Yeah. In passing. But he's a maintenance man. He's theoretically from Colorado, but he is, and I think we talk about this in the episode, he is the mainliest main character I have ever read in dialogue. Like, (laughs) it is, I mean, there's so much main in Stephen King, but this is, like, if there were were a bracket to to narrow down who the mainliest character is, like, this guy is, like, equal parts wise, conservative, populist, liberal, profane mm-hmm. is exactly what all of Maine is like. <laughs> the line I remember of his is he's talking about Ullman and he says, if brains were black powder, he couldn't blow his nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. All right. Do you have any words of wisdom for the people on their way out of this episode? Oh boy. Get therapy. Before it gets to the point where you have to smash your own head in with a roke mallet, because by then it's too late. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Wire Dads. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our illustrious producer and music director who wrote a song for this week's episode. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's a delight, as are you. And thanks so much to Fresh Lesh for the beats. We appreciate you, Lesh. Thanks for doing what you do. Thank you to our fine listeners. That's you, dear listener. Thank you for being a part of this whole thing with us. Wired Ads is made possible with support by Knack Factory, a creative and commercial video and content production company based in Portland, Maine, though they do work throughout these here United States. If you need video produced, if you need content made, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. And... It's made possible by you. Thank you so much. Thank you to our Patreon supporters, patreon.com slash wiredads. Lots of great 
fun bonus content has been coming out there. We covered uh, the Snyder Cut that is out or soon to be out. We're going to cover Room 237 to accompany this episode or to follow up this episode. We have done The Last Unicorn. Lots of great stuff over there. Content available for whatever level you support at. And if you're not able to support, thank you so much anyway for just being here with us. We're so happy that you're here and just part of this community. We appreciate all of you. You can find us on social media at Twitter and Instagram. Where else can you find us? We have a website. If you could leave a review, that would be fantastic wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm on TikTok at Alex Steed. So if you want to find me there, if you're there for some reason, that's what's happening over there. Join us next week, won't you? It's my Karina Longworth impression. (laughs) It's a deep cut for our fellow podcast fans. All right, that's enough for now. So long.